Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. After Matt Hancock's humiliating departure over the weekend, the government considers the case closed. But few others do. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Those of us who make these rules have got to stick by them, and that's why I've got to resign. This week, the government is making big decisions on self-isolation for schoolchildren, masks and all the other restrictions we've learnt to live with. And all the while hoping the public might have already forgotten Matt Hancock's shock resignation at the weekend. So my task is to help return the economic and cultural life that makes this country so great, while of course protecting life and our NHS. Sajid Javid is the new health secretary. So is the UK now in safe hands? Plus, this is where I live. This is my community. Don't come here and shout at me in the street. After one of the nastiest campaigns in UK politics in recent times, will tomorrow's Batley and Spend by-election cause another electoral upset for Labour? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, for a roundup of the latest news out of Westminster, I'm joined by the Guardian columnist Raphael Bear. Hello. Raph, it's lovely to have you on. I mean, and it's technically not last week's news, I guess, now, but I'm intrigued to know where were you when you first saw or learned of that image of Matt Hancock? And what did you think? Did you think this man's going to survive because Boris Johnson never sacks anyone? Or did you think that's it? <laughs> it, it you make it sound like it was sort of a moon landing or a Kennedy assassination. It, wasn't, it felt like it. Was, it. I'm not sure it was quite of that order. Um, I, I think I heard it on the radio and then obviously went to look at the picture. Um, and my immediate reaction was that uh, he should obviously resign. Boris Johnson would obviously try and defend him and that the position would be, let's see if we can ride out the weekend and hope that it bounces off uh, the news agenda. Uh, And if it doesn't, then we'll have to get rid of him, Um, uh, which is pretty much what happened, I think. And what I had underestimated, although I thought he had to go, was it was only when I was reminded of exactly what he'd said uh, with regard to Neil Ferguson, remember the epidemiologist, a government advisor who had to resign uh, because he had an affair and broken lockdown regulations. When I saw the Hancock clip... It's a matter for the police. As a government minister, I'm not allowed to get involved in the operational decisions of police matters. You know, the social distancing rules are, are very important and people should follow them. I thought, yeah, that, this is now unsurvivable. Yeah, and talking to people on the inside, that is that is actually one of the things I think that concentrated minds 
you know, inside number 10 and inside the Department of Health, that, 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 that it just was completely untenable. And also the fact that he was just, you know, you can't have someone who's going to stand up in front of the nation and say you have to follow these rules because the whole country is just going to be like, well, you can go to wherever. Yeah, and I think this is this is the ongoing legacy of this in some respects that I, you know, and it's possible that Sajid Javid comes at this whole issue of easing regulations from a slightly different place to Matt Hancock. We get the impression he does. He's a little bit more libertarian on that. He wears a, a treasury hat uh, in a way that Matt Hancock didn't while sitting at the Department of Health and Social Care. Uh, so they might have to sort of have a different ethos with regards to the regulations. But also, I think even with Hancock out, the authority of this government now corporately to be telling people how they should behave uh, in private, who they should be hugging, who they shouldn't be hugging, that sort of stuff. Um, it, it It's now shredded in a way that is probably irrecoverable. They could sort of claw it back a bit after Cummings uh, and, and there was a whole you know, subsequent waves of pandemic that, that changed the calculus there anyway. Now, I think they probably recognise that they've lost that authority and they, it's gone to a place they can't come back from. I might be wrong about that. I want to come on to, to Sajid a little bit later, but in terms of the sort of lingering issues from from the Hancock case, there's also this concern over the use of private emails. feels very familiar to anyone who's ever watched the politics uh, across the pond. Um, number 10 has admitted that now, you know, that, that Health Minister Lord Bethel used the private emails for, for government business in terms of these PPE contracts, even though he, they had denied that 24 hours earlier. Is that sort of issue here as damaging as it obviously was for Hillary Clinton in the in the US? Uh, the short answer to that, I think, is no, because first of all, Hillary Clinton was a presidential candidate. Uh, but more importantly, yeah, there was a huge machinery of Republican and Trump campaign uh, sort of ferocity uh, sort of weaponizing these that that issue. Uh, and, and it was big became a proxy for things you wanted people to be talking about in a negative context of, around a candidate. So they weren't talking about all the various things that were wrong with Donald Trump's candidacy. That's not at all the situation now. Uh, and, and more broadly, then, I think we've learned over the last you know three, four, five years, that's not really something that animates public opinion that much. That doesn't mean it's not important. I, mean, I have to keep saying this. Like the fact that voters don't care about something doesn't mean we shouldn't care about it. Um, but it does mean I think it only becomes really politically um, sort of fissile if it forms part of a wider pattern of derelict government. And it might do. Coming back sort of to the Prime Minister and his attitude to it, he considered the matter closed apparently on, on Friday uh, and... By Saturday, there was a new health secretary. He has been prepared to use up political capital, hasn't he, to defend ministers, to keep ministers like Priti Patel, uh, Robert Jenrick in post, to keep Dominic Cummings as well. Why, why do you think he's been prepared to do that? And, you know, obviously we, we've gone through the reasons why it was untenable with Hancock, but he doesn't quite like to be bounced into those kind of decisions. So he is prepared possibly to accept lower standards. Yeah, there are a number of factors going on here. I think one is he really hates the idea of surrendering um, a minister to what he sees as a media scrum. So I think in, in, in this case, he probably was a bit slow to recognise that the public anger was so strong that that was going to be rebound onto him. I think his first instincts, you know, he is a former journalist. He sees does see things a little bit through that lens and the sense that, you know, the, the, the hack pack will move on eventually. You can just ride it out. So that's one factor. I think another factor is he quite likes weak ministers. 
I mean, he wants, yeah, presumably he wants people who can basically do the job. He certainly needs a good, strong chancellor in terms of competence. But, you know, he, he doesn't do cabinet government. And what he needs is people who are totally loyal to him. And in a sense, a, a slightly wounded minister who is totally dependent for their survival uh, on on the sort of the, the generosity and the indulgence of the prime minister. It's a power dynamic that Boris Johnson quite likes. And it's quite interesting that when he did do the replacement, what he did was bring in Sajid Javid, to whom he had, I understand, promised something in a reshuffle a while ago. And I think Sajid Javid would have would have started to get quite annoyed if that hadn't happened because, you know, he's the former chancellor, albeit not for very long, but he could cause trouble. He's the sort of person who could cause trouble on the back benches. And so... But he hasn't actually, has he? He's been he's been pretty disciplined. He's been very disciplined. And why? Well, because he was expecting to come back in at some point. So um, that needed to be done, but it also cauterized the wound in the cabinet really efficiently without then having to go through the wider reshuffle. So I think we learned quite a lot about the way Boris Johnson sees his cabinet and, and does, for what an a better word, management, because it's not really serious management uh, of his government. It was odd to see, uh, you know, how how quickly ministers could switch from defending Hancock and then suddenly saying he's right to go. And it does sort of bring back into in, into the mind how Dominic Cummings had said that that he believed that Hancock's being set up as a as a as a full guy for the pandemic in in a future inquiry. That made it difficult for Boris Johnson to make him the full guy because obviously he wants to do the opposite of what Dominic Cummings says he'll do, but now it makes it easier. And do you think that Hancock may end up having quite a lot of what of the errors of the of the first the initial errors of the pandemic foisted on him, even though it seems pretty clear now that the errors in the autumn particularly were were were, were absolutely Boris Johnson's. Well, if the question is, would Boris Johnson rather take blame on himself or make a scapegoat <laughs> of his former health secretary? I think we both know pretty clearly what the answer to that question is going to be. I mean, more generally, that it is a manoeuvre, the idea of having a minister as a shit sponge, you know, someone who basically just soaks up you know, all the trouble and the mess, which you don't then want to sort of throw away until there's, if you think there's more to be soaked up. And I'm not sure this is a conscious thing, to be honest. I think it's actually probably subconscious, although I'm no psychoanalyst. I think the idea that he doesn't want to make a kind of competence and managerial capability and seriousness the criterion for serving in his cabinet, because as soon as you say you know, the, the measure of a good cabinet minister is that they're just serious and competent and capable, immediately it raises the question, well, to what extent does that apply to the prime minister? <laughs> if that's the test, then why is Boris Johnson the prime minister? Um, and, and I think he kind of knows that at some level. Before we move on to talking a tiny bit about Sajid Javid, this investigation has been launched into this camera that took that god awful video of the moment in question. In terms of the government's approach to security, I mean, there's there's clearly been some sort of leak inside the Department of Health. Uh, apparently, the no, minister had no idea there was CCTV inside these these things that look like enormously like cameras on their on their ceilings that they've obviously failed to notice for a number of years. The PM and, and we wrote yesterday that that Dominic Raab's phone number's been online, the same as the as the Prime Minister's number been online. I mean, there's there's just generally a bit. Of, it feels like there's generally a bit of a lax approach to all of this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I have to admit that was, if not the second, possibly the third thought I had when I saw the story on the front page of the Sun. It's hang on a second, a a, a security camera inside the office of a Secretary of State has just like footage from that has made its way into a national newspaper. Surely that is a huge security breach. I mean, how on earth is that even happening? Um, and I absolutely agree. I mean, with regard to mobile phone numbers and technology, that we have to understand we're operating in a, in a sort of 
geostrategic security environment where there are hostile states that would very gladly get into the mobile phones of senior government officials, cabinet ministers, the prime minister, and the sense that an awful lot of government is still sort of operating in this, you know, frankly, like, you know, early 20th century or late Victorian gentlemanly, you know, we do this all on bits of paper and vellum and pass it around, don't really understand the character of the threat that, you know, having loose digital hygiene actually can do to a government. Uh, I find that actually pretty worrying. So it seems we've got a bit of a a brave new world with Sajid Javid in the health brief. And it it really seems to tip that quad of ministers who look at restrictions uh, in a very different direction. And he, he came out the gates very strong on restrictions definitely being lifted on July 19th. And obviously, you know, the data doesn't actually look that bad, even though cases are high, the hospitalisation rate has remained, you know, not too bad. Um, and there are clearly worries about the autumn and the winter, though. I mean, what do you make of the new direction of the government from, from Sajid Javid in that brief? You know, he hasn't been in the department for very long. And I think fairly quickly, you know, he, he will, you know, all ministers acculturate after a while and once they start to understand exactly what the pressures are on the NHS uh, and um, you know what the requirements are in terms of how much money social care needs you know they inevitably you, that that treasury hat is going to slide off the back of his head and his department of health and social care hat will go on a little bit more firmly um, I think what's really crucial here is that it does appear that the link between infection and hospitalisation and death has been broken by the vaccination programme. Uh, and what follows from that and the statement, you know, Javid's statement and others that basically the 19th of July is just happening, it's a done deal, is a recognition that we're going to just ride it out now. Another sign that the government seemed to be really pushing ahead with the idea of returning to total normality, not, you know, not keeping rules about any masks anywhere, Um you know, even sort of maybe phasing out reporting the figures on COVID or, or phasing out the use of, of, of test and trace. Um, we wrote this week that they are intending to phase out the idea that pupils in England will have to automatically isolate after contact with the positive COVID case when schools return in September. And yet cases are going up every day. And do you think, you know, it, it's perhaps unwise to push ahead with this return to everything back to normal, free for all, completely? Well, I think there are two separate issues here. One is how safe it is uh, to just allow uh, COVID more or less to run riot through the unvaccinated part of the population, which will substantially be children and, and young adults because they're, you know, they're at the back of the queue for the vaccine and children can't yet be vaccinated. There's an ethical question, which is, well, you're not, it's not, you're not eliminating the threat by allowing this thing to, to rip through the unvaccinated population. So should you be doing it? Um, and then there's a second question here, which is more about administrative competence, which is that you know, it's been a while now that we've known that the Delta variant is much more transmissible. Uh, and it wasn't uh, a huge leap of the imagination to think that if you then simultaneously said, uh, you know, in schools, you can take off your masks, uh, you know, all the, the restrictions or you know, substantial restrictions are being relaxed, that the inevitable consequence would be lots and lots of people were going to get it in schools. Um, and that seems to have taken the government by surprise. So if the issue here is sort of oversized bubbles that mean that you're sending scores, hundreds of kids home when there's a positive case when really you don't need to do that anymore. Managing the situation solutions are not impossible to imagine. What's slightly depressing uh, and 
equally sadly not very surprising is that the government only seems to be thinking about how you had managed that now that everyone else has said oh by the way this is a massive problem and one you should have foreseen so uh, I, I simply scientifically i don't know what the answer is uh, in terms of uh, you know what's safe what i think is abundantly clear is that it's just part of the pattern of the government waiting until a problem really lands hard in its lap before even beginning to think about how you deal with it Yes, it is, is going to be a tricky balance to strike anyway, whatever they decide. And hopefully by next week when we're when we're speaking on the podcast again, we should have some some better idea of exactly how, how that balance is going to be struck ahead of July 19th. Um, but Raf, for now, thank you so much as always for joining me. It was It was great to have you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. After the break, we look ahead to tomorrow's Batley and Spend by-election. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now we turn our attention to Yorkshire, the place where I was born, and the constituency of Batley and Spen. Tomorrow, voters will go to the polls to choose who they would like to see replace Tracy Braben, who stood down in May after being elected mayor of West Yorkshire. And candidates include Labour's Kim Ledbetter, the sister of the murdered MP Joe Cox, and the former Labour MP George Galloway, who's thrown quite a spanner in the works. To get their reading of the situation on the ground, my colleague Aubrey Allegretti spoke to Guardian columnist Owen Jones, the former Labour MP Paula Sheriff, and Jane Green, Professor of Political Science and British Politics at Oxford University. Owen, let's start with you by looking at the last few days of campaigning. It's fair to say they've been incredibly tense, with Labour targeted by fake leaflets, and the party was also accused by one of its own MPs of using dog whistle racism to win votes. What stood out to you when you visited the seat? Well, actually, I mean, I visited Batley and Spen now, well, a week and a half ago. And, and in politics, a lot can happen, as we know, in a week. And I think that's certainly been the case on the ground of Batley and Spen, though I've been communicating with canvassers, mostly Labour canvassers, on the ground. And it's clearly very tense. I mean, it was tense anyway, because we've got to remember there are several far-right candidates standing in that constituency. And as we know, Joe Cox, of course, was murdered by a far-right extremist just over half a decade ago. So that in itself, you know, lends an inflammatory character to the by-election. But clearly, you know, George Galloway is a very demagogic character with a pretty tawdry record when it comes to campaigning. In terms of Labour's leaflet, I mean, it's interesting that leaflet, which a lot of people have focused upon, 
there's a lot of debate about it. And that's definitely true that, for example, uh, my own local MP for Stockport has has come out and condemned a leaflet which Labour issued, which spoke out about conservative Islamophobia, but also highlighted the conservative closeness to Modi, the extreme Hindu nationalist uh, leader of India, of course. Now, he believes that this actually is dog whistle racism. It's not for me as a white person to start intervening on this. It has cut through in a constituency uh, like Batley and Spen. Other things have cut through as well, which is why I think that leaflet annoyed some, such as Keir Starmer withdrawing from an iftar because one of the Muslim speakers at that iftar supported boycotting olives from Israeli settlements. Now, that has cut through in a bad way. But nonetheless, as I say, that leaflet has antagonised lots of people, but for very different reasons. But there's clearly a very tense atmosphere on the streets of Batley and Spen. Jane, I want to come to you next. There have obviously been accusations of dirty tricks campaigns. How might those influence voters? I think what we have to do when we think about Batley and Spen is look at the broader context. I mean, what you've got there is a really potentially very, very problematic context for the Labour Party. Um, so campaigning in that context is is going to be incredibly unpredictable. And obviously, because of all the things that Owen was saying, also very potentially inflammatory and tense. But it's worth remembering that what's at stake here isn't just Labour potentially losing votes amongst it, its ethnic minority previous supporters, the Muslim voters who, if you listen to reports on the ground, sound like they're being persuaded by George Galloway. Now, that's very interesting because George Galloway didn't have that kind of success in previous elections where he's been running against a Labour MP. And so the fact that there's a particular context here, a particular moment, a particular context in that local constituency where he may be able to cut through to a much greater degree than he has when he stood against different candidates. So, you know, a really, really tricky situation. And then the Liberal Democrats only have to make a small recovery nationally, and that be replicated in Batley and spent to some degree. And that's even more difficult for the Labour Party. Paula, we remember in the last two elections how much of a theme division was, predominantly the Brexit dividing fault line. We're obviously seeing a different kind of division now in the Batley and Spend by election campaign. What do you make of how representative that is of wider divisions still in place across the country? It's interesting because in the 2019 general election, the big division was Brexit, wasn't it, largely? And I represented the constituency right next door to Batley and Spen, Dewsbury. And that certainly played out on the doors. Um, I've been canvassing on a number of occasions in this by-election, albeit not as much as I ordinarily would have because I'm recovering from a serious illness. And Brexit just hasn't come up at all on the door to me. I don't think it's been mentioned a single on a single occasion. The tension just feels like it's rising, particularly since last Friday when the Labour candidate Kim was accosted in the street by somebody who was, I understand a man from Birmingham who was shouting questions to her about the LGBT education in, in schools. And it just feels like it has risen quite considerably since then. You know, when this circus leaves town on the 2nd of July, you know, they're going to have to pick up the pieces and and, and try and refine that unity. Let's look at the polls then, which predict that Labour is set to lose this seat. Senior figures in the party certainly haven't been shy when I've spoken to them about saying that the split on the left will see the Conservatives fairly easily pick this up. Jane, there'll be people who draw similarities with Hartlepool, which Labour also lost. 
What what factors are there at play here? Can we draw many similarities, or are there a completely different set of factors going on? Well, I think with every constituency election, there's always a combination of national factors and local factors. And it's true that, you know, splitting Labour's vote is one of Labour's primary national electoral problems. Um, So if we think about what happened in 2019, also what was in evidence somewhat in Cheshire and Amersham, which is of course a very different context, very different constituency, but you see there the challenge for Labour, not just on the left, but also on the Remain side. And Labour is sharing those potential voters in England with the Liberal Democrats and also with the Greens. And so in a sense, you've got a, you know, you've got a kind of replication of Labour's national problem, but with a very local um, characteristic, which is this particular issue around um, the, you know, the question of how well Labour is representing its Muslim voters. Um, throw into that equation also, you know, Kim's candidacy and the symbolic significance of that, um, her potential ability to win over and to retain voters who have stuck with Labour in recent elections. I think, you know, if she isn't able to do that, then that would be very sobering news indeed for the Labour Party. Owen, Keir Starmer is obviously coming under a lot of pressure over this. After Hartlepool, there was some tinkering with his top team. Do you think that will have done anything to influence voters in the run-up to Thursday? And I don't want to treat this like a foregone conclusion because, as Chesham and Amersham showed, there can always be surprises. But what will happen to Keir Starmer if Labour lose Batley and Spen? Well, no, I don't, I don't think any voters on the doorsteps of Batley and Spen have, have noticed Keir Starmer rearranging his top team, to, to be brutally frank with you. And I don't think that will be any factor whatsoever. Now, Keir Starmer's pitch on becoming leader of the Labour Party was clearly to advance upon the result in 2019 as the bare minimum to make Labour electable again. It wasn't to say, well, actually, we're going to go backwards from Labour's vote share in 2019, because what we're seeing in Batley and Spen is loyal, often lifelong. And I spoke to these people, they're very emotional. I spoke to one guy, a former councillor for the Labour Party, who said to me, on the one hand, it all went wrong for Labour when they picked the wrong Miliband because of the unions. He's now campaigning for George Galloway. He thinks Labour's abandoned Muslims and has betrayed the Muslim community. He's not a lefty, by the way. And the consensus I got from Muslims, they sounded like Scottish Labour voters a few years ago. We've been taken for granted. Labour expects us to vote for us come what may. We're going to give them a bloody nose. In Scotland, of course, when they crossed that Rubicon, many of them did not, well, they didn't come back. And Scottish Labour Party's in a mess. And, you know, the excuses we hear, well, there's a pandemic on. Apparently, this is only something that affects the Labour Party because it didn't affect the Liberal Democrats in Cheshire and Amersham. So I think... The route, the inferno, as I keep describing, of 2019, that was not the flaw. If this is the trajectory Labour is now on, Labour is going to lose dozens of seats in a general election. And yet the only answers the Labour leadership seems to have, according to a long read in the Huffington Post, is just to attack the left more, which is generally called irrelevant, but now is obviously going to be blamed for what happens in a by-election. And just lastly on that, because I've spoken a long while there, We were told over and over again that foreign policy issues were niche issues uh, that most voters just don't care about. They're freakish obsessions with the Labour membership. I know that's what Keir Starmer's team thought. But issues like Palestine and Kashmir have cut through and will play a decisive role in this by-election. And it is not, you know, as a gay person, I would never, ever belittle the issue of homophobia. And homophobia is pervasive in this society. But there is an approach, and Labour official briefed this to the Mail on Sunday, a narrative is being laid by some 
that Muslim disillusionment is not being driven by legitimate concerns, but by homophobia and anti-Semitism. And anyone who's gone to Batley and Spen and spoken to Muslim voters knows that is false and it's a dangerous game some are playing. Paula, just to come to you, on the other hand, we can't get too ahead of ourselves yet. The the result hasn't been announced. I suppose it, the result could be different to what the polls are suggesting. We, we've obviously seen a surprise recently in Cheshire and Amerson. That would, I assume, be a big sigh of relief for Labour and help them show that they can hold on to seats and then crucially win more when we get to the next general election, which doesn't feel too far away anymore. Absolutely, it would be a huge sigh of relief if we won. Um, I don't, I don't agree with Owen in so much as that I think Keir should should go if we lose this by election. It's not to say I think he has a an open ticket, so to speak, and I think he has made mistakes. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I I understand the nuances of the the Muslim community in Batley and Spen very well because Dewsbury has a very similar demographic. And I think there has been confusion about Kashmir on Palestine. I think the Labour Party could have done more, particularly during the recent atrocities that have occurred. People have to understand that the international issues are really, really big around here. But having said that, Keir took over at a very, very difficult time. Labour were at rock bottom. We'd had our worst election results since 1935. But who can take over from Keir? We have to consider who would replace him? Because I can't think of anybody at the moment who would be able to come in and, and do a better job. Where I also slightly disagree with Owen is that I don't believe the Muslim community, the Muslim voters have gone for good. And I understand why people are drawing parallels with what happened in Scotland. But I'm kind of on the ground up here and I, you know, I, I listen and I'm, I'm hearing what people are saying. And this is all about giving Labour a bloody nose in this election you know, that there is going to be a significant proportion of that Muslim community that are going to vote for George Galloway. But but that said, George has always been a little bit of an icon up here because he was so vocal in his opposition to the Iraq war. So, you know, the fact that it's George Galloway standing himself, had it been someone from his party, it wouldn't have had anything like the same effect. But but as we've said, we, ha- we have to wait for Friday, you know, to get the result. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Well, that question of what next is one I'm sure some Labour figures are already considering in advance of the result later this week. We obviously don't have to wait long to find out, and I'm sure Keir Starmer's team are preparing for all eventualities too. Thank you very much to the panel for joining us. Thank you. Cheers, nice one. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. And that was Aubrey Allegretti speaking to Jane Green, Paula Sheriff and Owen Jones. And if you'd like to hear more about the by-election... Listen to today's episode of Today in Focus, where Guardian reporter Maya Wolf-Robinson visits Batley and Spen. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra, as Jonathan Friedland speaks to Yasmin Abutaleb about new revelations on just how ill former President Trump was when he contracted coronavirus, and why he and former US presidents chose to hide their illnesses from the world. And before you go, we wanted to let you know about a very special audiovisual project The Guardian was involved with recently. Auditorial is an experiment from The Guardian, Google and the RNIB. It was created to showcase the possibility of accessible stories for blind and low vision audiences. And on the platform, we bring to life an audio-led piece called The Silent Spring, which explores the devastating effects of climate crisis on the sounds of the natural world. Discover more at g.co slash auditorial. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Raphael Baer, Owen Jones, Jane Green, Paula Sheriff 
and Aubrey Allegretti. The producer is Yolene Gafan and I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.